Well, good morning. Welcome to City Reach Oakton. Open up your Bibles, if you've got them, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, passionately proclaimed. He said, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. So what was the one thing that was of first importance to Paul? It was the Gospel. It was the truth that Jesus the Messiah died, was buried, and rose again. Paul says that even biblical things, good things, are not of the same weight as this. You see, if there is anything that you should be passionate about, it's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. And I don't just mean that you should be passionate about sharing the gospel with others. You should be passionate about that. But what I mean is that we should be passionate about celebrating the gospel, contemplating the gospel, going deeper into the gospel. Unfortunately, as Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Discipline of Grace, While the gospel is the only important and essential message in all of human history, he says thousands of professing Christians live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. Biblical scholar D.A. Carson agrees. He writes, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. You know, instead of living a gospel-centered life, where your life is centered on the objective work of Jesus on your behalf, it's easy to fall into one of three dangerous tendencies. Firstly, you can fall into the danger of subjectivism. Subjectivism is where you base your relationship with God upon your subjective feelings. So you feel like if you're going really well, and maybe you've been to a conference, or you've had this time away with God and you're on a spiritual high, you feel like, you know, you're accepted by God. But if you're passing to the, through the valley, then many people question their assurance. Or second, you can fall prey to legalism. Legalism is where you base your relationship with God on your performance to man-made rules. And when you're doing well and when you're following all the rules, when you're ticking all the boxes, you can feel like you're going well, but when you're not, you'll be filled with self-loathing. Or finally, the pendulum can swing to the other side and we can fall prey to license where the gospel and its power is not at the center of your life. It's easy to become complacent and no longer pursue holiness. But the answer to all these, subjectivism, legalism and license is the gospel. And so if you fall and pray to subjectivism, legalism or license, then it's because you've forgotten the gospel. The gospel is no longer of first importance in your life. George Orwell, the famous writer, once noted that sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious. Now, I know for many of you who have been members of our church for many years, will will probably think that I'm sounding now like a proverbial broken record. Because if there's been one thing that I've been seeking to emphasize over the last 10 years in my preaching, it's the absolute centrality of the gospel. 
not as just your ticket into the Christian life. You, you, you don't just believe the gospel at the beginning and then go on to some deeper teaching. No, the gospel is something that you need every single day to grow as a Christian. You go deeper in to the gospel. You understand the gospel at deeper depths. And in the midst of a year that hasn't worked out exactly as we had expected, what do we still need? The gospel. What needs to be our focus and what needs to be of first importance? I would say the gospel. I know that the future is still uncertain. I know that cases of coronavirus are increasing in Victoria. But what needs to be our focus? I would say it is the gospel. And as we come into John 18 in our study of John's gospel today, we come to the very heart of the gospel. We come to the cross. And my one purpose of this series, the contours of the cross, as we study through John 18 through to John 20, is to bring before you again, vividly and compellingly, the cross. Because as Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Paul says it doesn't just contain the power. He doesn't say it just unleashes the power. He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it is my prayer in this series that as a church, we'll remember that which is of first importance, the gospel, as we study the contours of the cross. So open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 18 and verse 1. We read in chapter 18, verse 1, these words. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Now, what are the words that Jesus spoke and where did he go? Why did he leave? You know, I love expository preaching. Expository preaching is where you preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. I don't think I would go to a church where the preacher didn't preach expositorily because when you preach chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, you have to deal with all the difficult topics. You can't just, you know, preach on your pet, pet topics. You can't just cover the, your pet things. You have to actually, you have to preach the whole counsel of God. But one of the things that can happen, especially when you are preaching a large book of the Bible, and John's gospel is a large book, it goes for 21 chapters, and we've been in it for some time, is what can happen is you can miss the forest for the trees. You can, you can you know, miss the overall structure of the gospel. And so I want to remind you again of the overall structure of John's gospel as we come back into John 18. John's gospel has five basic sections. First, you have the prologue or the introduction to the book, which runs from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 18. In John's prologue, he actually starts, different to the other gospel authors, he starts top down. He presents Jesus as the divine Logos, who was one with the Father, through whom the Father created all things and who came into the world. Then we read in verse 19, the second section runs from verse 19 through to the end of chapter 12, and in this section, the Apostle John is seeking to prove the divinity of Jesus, and he does by presenting the miracles of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. But then the third section runs from chapter 13 through to chapter 17, and this is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's Thursday night before Friday when Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus shares the Passover meal with his disciples, and he teaches them and prepares them for his departure. And then you come into chapter 18 through to chapter 20, 
and you have the death and resurrection of Jesus. And finally, the last section of John's gospel is an epilogue in chapter 21. And it's this beautiful, beautiful story of Jesus restoring the fallen disciple Peter and recommissioning him. So as we come into chapter 18, Jesus has finished his Passover meal. He's taught them many things. He's prayed for them in John 17. And then he departs the upper room. And we read in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, that he went across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, I want you to, in your imagination, picture the scene with me this morning. It's the middle of the night. It was the time of the Passover. At Passover, the Jews would remember how in the Exodus, the angel of death had passed over their homes when in obedience to God, they had taken the blood of a spotless lamb and painted it over their doorposts. And the Jews would remember this at a yearly by celebrating a meal together and also by taking spotless lambs and sacrificing them in the temple. And it was estimated that up to 200,000 lambs were sacrificed at this time. And there was a drain that would run from the temple down through the Kidron Valley. So when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron, it was red with the blood of these lambs. It would have been a reminder to Jesus how in a few hours his blood would be shed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the garden that John refers to here in verse one is obviously the garden of Gethsemane. But John just calls it the garden. And I think the reason that John does this is for a very specific reason. He wants to invite his readers into the larger biblical story. You see, it was in another garden in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of the story, where the first Adam disobeyed God. And because of his disobedience, the whole world was cursed. And sin entered the world and death entered the world and the devil came to rule over this world. But it would be in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where the second Adam, Jesus, would choose to obey his father's will and go to the cross. Now, if you look down in your Bibles, look down your Bibles this morning. You've got your Bibles here this morning or your phones. Just look down your Bibles. You will notice that there is a bit of a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 in John's account. From the other Gospels, we know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood and he cried out and prayed to his father three times, take this cup from me. But you notice in John's account, John here in chapter 18, John doesn't include this detail. You know, whenever you study your Bible, you not only need to study what is there, but when you are studying um, something that has parallel passages, it's good to compare with those other parallel passages. And I think that the reason that um, John doesn't include this story of Jesus sweating drops of blood and crying out to his father to take the cup away is because John wants to show us something very important about the character of Jesus. In 1906, German hypercritical scholar Albert Schweitzer published uh, a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. It was a landmark book in liberal 
theology at that time. You see, Albert Schweitzer, he was part of the Enlightenment movement. He believed that modern people would no longer accept the Jesus of faith. The Jesus that you read in the Gospels, the one who walks on water, the one who raises the dead, the one who performs miracles. And so Albert Schweitzer said, if we want to get modern man to accept Jesus, then we need to bring the Gospels into modern life. We need to cut out all of that supernatural stuff. And so Albert Schweitzer just saw Jesus as this revolutionary who was seeking to bring a revolution into Israel. But ultimately, Schweitzer, even though he saw him as a good moral man, he said he was ultimately a failure. He was ultimately crushed on the wheel of human history. But John, in his gospel, far from presenting Jesus as a helpless victim, he goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus was always in control as Lord of all. As Jesus had said in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I'm not a helpless victim who's crushed like a rag doll on the wheel of history. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my father. And in the next few verses, we are going to see the authority of Jesus on display. Look down in verse two, we read this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place but Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus had obviously taken his disciples often to the Garden of Gethsemane and taught them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So can you picture this again in your imagination? It's the middle of night. Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane and they see this stream of light coming over the Kidron Valley and they hear the clanging of the metal of the weapons of the armed soldiers. It would have been terrifying. It's the middle of night. But how does Jesus respond? Look down in verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? This is astounding. Instead of backing back in fear, Jesus steps forward to meet the armed crowd. You see, Jesus was not some helpless victim. He is Lord. He is God incarnate. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows he's in control the whole time. Now, in response to his question, whom do you seek? Look down in verse five. They answered Jesus of Nazareth. And once again, Jesus doesn't back away, even though Judas is there. And he says openly to them, I am he. But notice what happened when Jesus said, I am he in verse six. This is astounding. It says they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, some people explain this as just, you know, Jesus had a commanding presence, commanding moral presence. And it is true that some people have a commanding presence. My pastor in Perth, Graham Johnson, he was a tall man and he had a big voice, a very commanding physical presence. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. No, I think when Jesus said, I am he, 
he was invoking his divine name. All throughout John's gospel, John has used the I am statements of Jesus to describe the divinity of Jesus. Um, you see in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God at the burning bush, who shall I say has sent me? God said, I am. So Jesus is invoking the divine name and at the divine name, they fall down. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And remember, who has possessed Judas at this point? We read in John 13, verse 27, that at the Last Supper, after Judas had taken the morsel of bread given to him by Jesus, Satan had entered into him. But yet at the name of Jesus, he backs away and falls down. You know, brothers and sisters, we are in a spiritual battle. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. We are in a spiritual battle. Now, oftentimes we think that spiritual battle is out there, but when you actually read Ephesians chapter 6, this spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 comes on the back of teaching about family and about marriage. There are spiritual battles going on in your family and your marriage right now. But you don't have to be defeated because Jesus wasn't defeated at the cross by Satan. No, Jesus won a victory at the cross over Satan. And Paul says, because of him, we are in him. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Amen. And there is power in the name of Jesus. And you can call out to Jesus in prayer and ask him for his strength, ask him for his grace. So that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to take your stand. You know, um, uh, you know, I came back from holidays and I just felt this heaviness over me, this real cloud over me when I came back Thursday a couple of weeks ago. It's this heaviness. And last week I went into work on Monday, there was this heaviness still over me. Woke up on Tuesday went for a walk and just was like saying to Lord, Lord, I'm just feeling really overwhelmed at the moment. And I just remembered the words, where do I begin? And I remember the words of John 15, Jesus said, abide in me. And so I just, just went home, prayed, read, my, read the word, spent time with the Lord. Well, later that day, it was about 12.30 and I looked down, I got this phone call on my phone. I looked down and it was a phone call from India. I was about to hang up because I thought it might be a um, telemarketer. But I thought, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just answer it and just put it up to my ear. I answered it, put it up to my ear, and it was Manoff Das. Remember Manoff and Joy? Who here remembers Manoff and Joy who came in 2012, 2014? And uh, Manoff just said, you know, I've been praying for you, and I just felt that I needed to call you and encourage you. He really encouraged me, spoke into my soul, he didn't even realize what he was doing, but he then said, can I pray for you? I said, absolutely, Manoff. And he prayed for me and asked God to really bless me and encourage me. Well, later that day, I was doing some shopping for Tegan and the heaviness had gone. The heaviness had lifted. I know some of you think that's crazy, but we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual war. But we have the resources of Christ because at the cross, Jesus won a decisive victory and we can take our stand in him, in 
the victory that he has won. So maybe some of you, what you need to do is what it says in James chapter 4. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Take your stand. So that when the day of evil comes, having done all, you will be able to stand. Well, look down in verse 7. So he, that's Jesus, asked them again, whom do you seek? Notice once again, <laughs> who's asking the questions? Who's the one who's asking the questions? It's Jesus who's asking the questions. It's not this armed group of soldiers. He's the one who's in control. And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now, John MacArthur in his commentary observes that by making his captors twice state that their orders were to arrest him, Jesus was forcing them to acknowledge that he had been given, that they'd only been given authority to arrest him and not his disciples. So do you notice that Jesus was shielding his disciples from being arrested? Why did he do this? Well, look down in the next verse. John says that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. You know, Jesus is the good shepherd and the good shepherd protects his sheep. Now, obviously, Jesus knew at this point that if the disciples went through all of the arrest with Jesus and if they were crucified with Jesus that it might be detrimental to their faith and their faith might fail and he loved them so much that he didn't want them to go through that Do you know I love that about Jesus I love that about Jesus Jesus knows about your trials he knows about your situation if you're his disciples and he he won't let you be tested beyond what you can bear now, I know in a therapeutic culture that, com that prizes comfort at all costs, we hear that and we think that Jesus will give us the perfect, comfortable life. And that's never promised by the Bible. The Bible promises actually the opposite, that we will go through trials and we will go through suffering on our way into the kingdom of God. But I love the fact that Jesus still stands over our lives and he knows us. He's looking out for our faith, that our faith will not fail. Well, verse 10, Simon Peter, then having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. A servant's name was Malchus. You're having a baby. Why don't you call him Malchus? What a name. <laughs> you can imagine Malchus going home that day and say, honey, we made the Bible. We're in the Bible. <laughs> you know, Peter is always impetuous. But he doesn't even go for the, like the main, sort of, um, main sort of guard. He just goes for the servant. It's like he, he takes on the intern, you know. That's Peter. Maybe Peter was trying to prove to Jesus because Jesus had said that he would betray him. Maybe Peter was trying to show, Peter was trying to show his bravado. You know, the problem with Peter was not that he was too passionate. The problem that, with Peter was that he was too self-reliant. And later that night, he would come to the end of himself. But, you know, it doesn't say this in John's gospel, but in other gospels, we know that actually Jesus picked up Melchus's ear and put it back on Melchus's uh, you know, head and healed him. And maybe it's because Jesus wanted Melchus to hear what he would say next. <laughs> Look down in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, 
put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And right here, we see the first contour of the cross. You see, what is the gospel all about? And what is the cross all about? I put forward to you that you will never really understand the heart of the gospel. You never really understand the cross unless you understand Jesus' words in verse 11 when he talks about drinking the cup that the Father had given him. You know, if you were to go down the street and you were to say to people, God loves you, do you know most people, most people would not be surprised. Most people would not be perplexed. Most people would not be stunned by that statement. Most people would think, yeah, of course, God loves me. That's what God's supposed to do. I'm, I'm so lovable. God loves me. Even for most Christians, we are, we are not so amazed by that statement. God loves you. And the reason that we are not amazed by that statement that God loves you is because we don't understand or we forget the depth of our depravity and sin. It's because we, you, you see, you'll never appreciate the cure unless you know the diagnosis, unless you have the correct diagnosis. You know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, God does love you. But the reason he sent his son to die for you is because God's wrath abides on you. His just anger at your sin and your rebellion. You see, the cup that Jesus refers to drinking of here is actually the cup of God's wrath. It was a metaphor, an image from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And Paul speaks about two forms of wrath in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he speaks of the passive wrath of God. And then in Romans chapter 2, he speaks of the active wrath of God. The passive wrath of God is that when we reject God, and we worship ourselves and we worship idols, then what God says is he says, I will give you over to that. I'll give you over to your wickedness. And we are in a society where people have neither given thanks to God, nor worshipped him as God. And our God, I think, is taking his hands on and saying, well, if you want to go your own way, I'll give up on you. And ironically, people think they're expressing their freedom. They, they think they're expressing their own, their own freedom. But ironically, it's actually God giving up on them. You don't want to be a person who God gives up on. You see, because in Romans chapter 1, the passive wrath of God lights a wick that will eventually explode in the active wrath of God. In Romans 2 verse 5, Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is coming a day that God has appointed where he will judge every person. 
And there is a cup with your name on it of wrath that you deserve. Every time you've broken one of God's commands, every time you've sinned, either by sins of omission, not doing what you should have done, or sins of commission, violating God's moral law. And you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You know, many people ask, they say, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's the wrong question. The question is, how can a holy God send people to heaven? You see, if God is holy and he is, he is holy, 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 and heaven is a perfect place. And how can he have people who are unholy in his presence? And the answer is, is that on the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath for your sin and my sin, and he drank every last drop. On the cross, Jesus drank every last drop of God's righteous anger for every thought, every action, every attitude of your heart that has been against God. Jesus drank the full fury of God's wrath for you. Let me ask you a question. For whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus die? I think for us, most of us, our, our natural response is to say Jesus died for us, died for me. It's true. That's true. But firstly, the Bible teaches that actually Jesus died for God. This is the concept of propitiation. This is the first contour of the cross. That on the cross, Jesus satisfied the just wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Remember, we we're talking about Passover before. We're talking about Passover and that, you know, when the angel of death came upon the nation of Israel and it was going to kill every firstborn child, both of the Israelites and the Egyptian, there was only one way of escape. And that was to take the blood of a spotless lamb and paint it over the doorpost of your house. But who was that blood for? That blood was for the angel. When the angel saw the blood, it passed over. When God the Father sees the work of God the Son satisfying his just wrath, he is able to forgive you of all of your sin and cleanse you and impute to you the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, and I, it may offend you when I say that you are under God's wrath. But as I said, unless we have the right diagnosis, we won't have the right cure. And the church is suffering under the weight of all these false gospels. Come to Jesus and you'll have a happy life and you'll have a great life. Well, it is a great life. There is joy in the Christian life. It's undoubtedly I'm so grateful I'm a Christian, but firstly and primarily, I'm grateful I'm not under the wrath of God. Because there will be nowhere to hide on Judgment Day. There will be nowhere to hide. You will stand before him and a book will be open and the sovereign God who sees all and knows all will review your life and it won't be just a pretty good standard. It will be the perfect holiness of God. It will only be the fact 
But on the cross, Jesus drank the full fury of God's wrath for you. And you see, this is what cures us of those. Do you remember I said right at the very beginning where you're listening, those three enemies of the gospel? Subjectivism. You know, subjectivism is where you go up and down. You're not really sure of your salvation. I'm assured of my salvation, but it isn't because of my feelings. It's because there was one who went to the cross for me in history and who died in history for me on my behalf. That's why I have assurance before God, because of what Jesus has done in history for me on the cross. So on my best day and on my worst day, I'm still forgiven. I'm still justified. I'm still God's child. It cures legalism. How could you ever believe by your little standard of doing certain things that you would ever be righteous in the eyes of God? You, it promotes deep humility. When you preach this type of gospel, people, they, 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 they're humbled. There is no boasting here, people. There is no boasting here. There is level ground at the cross. There is only thankfulness and gratefulness. And it destroys license. Because we realize that all of our sin was placed on him. And then out of deep love for Jesus, we want to live holy lives. I don't want to, I want to live the most holy life because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. So I'm praying church family, that we will see this as of first importance, that our church will walk out of this place and we will say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. I'll preach the full gospel, the full gospel, not some watered down, half-hearted attempt at the gospel, but the full gospel, because that's the gospel that saves eternally. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Maybe today, as you've been sitting there, God's spirit has been working in your heart and you've realized you need to run to the only place possible and you need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. You see, there are two cups that you can drink. There is the cup of wrath that you will drink on judgment day or there is a cup right now a cup of thanksgiving. On this same night, Jesus took the cup, broke bread, and he said, drink. This is the cup of my new covenant, my blood given for you. And the invitation is for you to come and drink this morning, to come and repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, be transformed by him. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come before you. We're so thankful for the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We're thankful that Jesus drank the cup that we deserve so that we might be forgiven by you, Father, so that we can walk with you every day. And Lord, we don't need this message just the first day of our Christian life 
the first day that we believed, but we need this message every day to be reminded of it because it's the engine that will fire up our hearts to love you and obey you and serve you. And I pray, Lord, as our church moves into an uncertain future, we don't know what's going to happen. I pray that we would always stick to that which is of first importance. We would teach the other things as well. They're important. They're in your word. We want to teach the whole counsel of God, but we pray that our hearts would always bleed for the gospel. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish by singing to our great God.